0: Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Sandy Hook and a Reckoning for Gunmakers. Early in 2022, a multi-year ordeal ended for the families of nine victims killed in the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut 10 years before. One of the country's biggest gunmakers, Remington Arms, the manufacturer of the assault weapon used in the murders, agreed to pay $73 million to settle a lawsuit the families filed against it. It was a landmark victory that opened a gap in the formidable, legal, and financial armor that had long allowed gunmakers to avoid accountability for gun deaths. The Remington settlement also offered a roadmap. If federal and state legislators weren't going to do something about gun violence, well, then maybe the courts could and maybe the courts could, if someone came along who was shrewd enough to figure out where gunmakers' legal vulnerabilities resided. My guest today is Josh Koskoff, the attorney who represented the Sandy Hook families. He's also part of a team of lawyers representing 16 victims and their parents who suffered because of the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, in 2022. The gun used in that school massacre was made by a small Georgia gun manufacturer, Daniel Defense. Josh, welcome to Crash
1: Course. Thank you very much, Tim.
0: Let's start with a little bit of context before we get into the meat of the case. Sure. How come it's taken so long for gun makers to be held accountable in a court of law? Give us some history and context around that.
1: Sure. And it's probably important for your listeners to understand that I could not have begun to answer this question 10 years ago since I didn't know anything about guns or gun litigation. But over the last 10 years, I've accumulated quite a bit of information that I never had previously. The basic problem with getting to gun manufacturers has been, in the age of the mass shooting at least, has been the passage of a gun quote-unquote immunity or shield law called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, and that occurred in 2005.
0: Shorthand for that is PLACA, if we refer to it right.
1: again. Right, PLACA, yeah. PLACA, like the stuff that gets stuck in your teeth.
0: Yeah, sort of stuck in the legal system.
1: Yeah, it gums up the works for <laughs> sure. And, you know, that sort of coincided, Tim, with the advent of the mass shootings, of what we're seeing today. You know, when I was growing up, there were no real mass shootings of the nature that happened seemingly with increasing velocity as time goes on. But, you know, it was unheard of, really, back when I was growing up. And so the passage of this law really coincided with sort of the dawn of a new age of mass shootings. Well, the momentum really occurred 10 years before, in 1994, when the assault weapons ban was passed under Clinton, with a great help from former President Reagan, who was very concerned about the proliferation of assault rifles on our streets and really got that bill over the finish line. That bill was a little bit, was flawed in my view and imperfect, but it was some momentum towards sanity, I would say. That lapsed, Tim, in 2004, Uh, and then in 2004, there was no appetite to renew the law. It had a 10-year sunset provision and Congress had flipped and the Iraq war was going on, and so we were on a war footing And I think that there was just no political or even public appetite for renewing the assault weapons ban at that time. People say it wasn't successful, but the truth is, well, we don't really know. You don't know what's been prevented from a law. But what we can say is that there were no rampant mass shootings occurring on a practically daily basis in America at the time. So that's some evidence that it was working. And without that rampant evidence, you know, people get a feeling of immune to the threat. Then you take away the protection and then the threat reoccurs.
0: So in that environment in 2005, PLACA is passed. Yeah. What did PLACA
1: do? What PLACA did was it put a stop to all pending lawsuits brought by cities that were dealing with daily crime, crime caused by handgun use and abuse and unscrupulous gun dealers and gun trafficking and things like that. Congress basically said, municipalities can no longer sue, people can no longer sue for harm or death caused by gun violence, unless you meet these certain criteria, which are very strict. So they had some exceptions, but most of the exceptions to the so-called immunity were exceptions in name only. There were a couple of exceptions that had some teeth to it, though, and, and those were sort of unexplored at the time of our Sandy Hook case.
0: Let's get to the exceptions later, because you're the one who actually ended up exploiting some of the exceptions. But while we're talking about PLACA and the enactment of PLACA, it's an interesting thing to me because basically you have an entire industry that is getting legal protection from being held liable for the consequences of social fallout and deaths in this case related to the products they're selling in the United States. And it's very rare, almost I would say non-existent, for an industry in the United States to get that kind of protection. Big tobacco built a moat around itself that was eventually breached, but they were never specifically guarded from liability lawsuits in the way the gun industry was. And few industries are. And I wanted you to sort of explain why you think the gun industry got that special dispensation.
1: Well, I think that the perception of the gun industry is that it's influential and leads to political success if you make the gun industry happy You make their rank and file happy and you win elections. I just think that it's that simple.
0: It's just, it's a reflection of the incredible political power it wields as an industry.
1: It is. And, you know, I think it's important to understand like with the gun industry, there's perception and reality. The gun industry is actually a really small industry. And so it was not just concerned about losing lawsuits, and having to pay for all the harm it caused. It was also just concerned about having to defend them and the costs of defense. It's a paltry industry. It really is.
0: One other contextual thing I wanted to explore with you was the idea of mass shootings. And a definition of a mass shooting, it's open to interpretation. But one working definition says a mass shooting involves four victims killed by a firearm in a public space. And some studies have indicated that about one third of the world's The entire world's public mass shootings between 1966 and 2012 occurred in the U.S. alone. And it got me thinking in the context of the Sandy Hook case that every time during those many decades there was a mass shooting, victims had no recourse really at all, like none at all. How do you see that? You know, what was Mm -hmm. that world before Sandy Hook and where are we now?
1: Well, I think you have to think about as the world before the immunity first, and then the world between the immunity and the Sandy Hook shooting. And in pre-2005 America, first of all, I haven't seen that study, but I would guess that there's a disproportionate amount of those shootings occurred later as time went on. But I will say that there are natural hurdles within the existing law, forget about the immunity, that make it challenging to sue any industry for starters. But More specifically to what we're talking about, the gun industry, because typically people are harmed or injured or killed by guns through the intermediate actions of another actor, a shooter, or a negligent actor, somebody who just sort of recklessly is shooting a firearm or drops a firearm, whatever. So there's usually an intervening actor. And whenever there's an intervening actor in the legal case, it adds a level of complexity because you have to reach a third party, so to speak. So there were natural impediments to suing gun manufacturers. So you ask, where were all the lawsuits? First of all, there were some, but typically they were lawsuits brought under conventional theories of products liability, where guns were accidentally discharging or had a defective trigger lock or things like that. Handguns is an exception because handguns were used primarily for most of the deaths and crime and suicides for that matter. But it's just there are natural hurdles to overcome to sue a gun industry, irrespective of the immunity. And so I don't think that it would have been easy for us to bring our lawsuit even without PLACA. I think it was extra hard with PLACA, but it, it still would have had to overcome certain natural legal hurdles.
0: As you mentioned earlier you had never tried a gun case before coming into, into contact with right. the Sandy Hook families. How did you first intersect with the Sandy Hook families and then decide to sue Remington? Tell me a little bit about that progression.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a progression that took place over two years, the decision to sue and how to sue. But it was really, Tim, a a real chance encounter. I was getting a ride to the airport about a week after the shooting by a guy who had a friend whose daughter was killed at Sandy Hook. And, you know, he asked me what I did for a living. And this is always a question I dread. Because when you're a lawyer and a person asks you what you do, you know, you don't know what's going to come next after you tell them you're a lawyer. <laughs> you could be dragged into any kind of problem that runs the gamut. You know, in this case, somebody who lost their daughter at a shooting in an elementary school. So it was a really, it was not a typical discussion. And of course, in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, I'm I'm about 20 minutes from Sandy Hook, and I had young kids at the time, so. This had already reached me and grabbed me, and I was thinking, gee, I would love to just help these people do whatever I can. I wasn't even thinking about a lawsuit. I was just thinking about, could we help them do the probate? Could we help them manage the press? Could we help them distribute this funds, you know, get people off their back? Those kinds of things. So you
0: rang up some of the family members or began finding family members you could speak to?
1: Yeah. I mean, they sort of, You know, I didn't pursue the family members. That's not how it works here in Connecticut. But this guy asked me if he could give his friend my number. And his friend contacted me. It turned out to be the father of actually one of the adult victims, Victoria Soto, who was a first grade classroom. And, you know, from there, I think because the families talked and they were in communication, the word got out that, hey, there's this lawyer who's just ignorant or (laughs) ignorant enough, but, you know, willing to naive enough. Naive enough, there you go, to look into our case and help us. And they were right about that.
0: And so you had to sort of gain their trust, talk strategically about the goals. And over time, a little team sort of coalesced around this. Is that how it happened?
1: Yeah. I mean, the people that were hard to convince were my colleagues here at the office. The families had a lot going on. And it was my promise to them that I would do all the work and that I would not add aggravation to their lives and that they should go about their lives and pretend there's nothing going on here. In part, I was very leery about overpromising and leading more disappointment to these families who had just been shattered by this horrific loss. So it it was not a case where you have a lot of interaction with the families in terms of what's going on. You want to be there for them emotionally. But the exploration was really occurring within the confines of our office. I had assembled a very small team here principally a fellow, we call her, right out of Yale Law School named Katie Messner hage Katie and I sort of were a two-man crew there for about two years, and we learned everything we could about the law and everything we could about guns. We shot guns. We met with cops. We ran the gamut. We really needed to know that if we had to sit down with the families and tell them there was no case, that we did everything we could before reaching that conclusion.
0: Well, now that we have some of this background, I want to take a brief break to hear from one of our sponsors. And then we'll be right back to talk about the legal strategy you then deployed to take on Remington. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May
1: 7th for the future investor,
0: We're back with Josh Koskoff, the attorney who successfully sued Remington for its role in the 2012 Sandy Hook school shootings. Josh, let's talk tactics. Earlier you told me about how you met some of the Sandy Hook families and then decided to go to court. Start at the beginning. When did you first file against Remington? And did you know what your strategy was going to be from the get-go?
1: Yeah, well, it took us two years to build the case and to get to a point where we narrowed down our legal strategies. And we filed effectively on the eve of the second anniversary. In Connecticut, you have two years to file in a wrongful death case, two years from the date of death. So we brought it up to the wire. And I thought that was important because when we filed, we wanted to make sure that we had assembled the most information and had thought about this the most carefully and had sort of troubleshot our theories and really to take the time. And so that's what we did. And we got the lawsuit in under the wire. After that, I mean, well, the motions started to come. There was one motion after another to try to derail the case. And that motion practice really ate up about five years of time. You know, one, it was removing it to federal court. It was it was trying to get it back to state court. It was filing the motions to dismiss our case. It was going up to the Connecticut Supreme Court. And then having to deal with the other side's petition to the United States Supreme Court.
0: Well, and what you call motion practice in the legal field is basically like jujitsu, <laughs> right? It's, yeah. it's The person that you're suing is finding every possible way to change the venue, slow things down, get actions dismissed, get file uh, counter charges against you or whatever it might be in their responses. And on and on and on. So motion practice is a polite legal, legalistic way <laughs> of sort of saying hand to hand combat, right?
1: Yeah. Or I would say shitstorm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, this shitstorm playbook, if you will, was developed by other industries have unleashed the same sequential playbook. So I wasn't totally shocked, but it's what big influential industry does to try to squash lawsuits and to make it Really difficult, if not impossible, for the little guy to take them on for their wrongdoing.
0: But had you talked to them before you filed? Like, had you thought about just sort of talking reason to them and encouraging them to find a settlement or do right by the families to persuade them from going to court altogether? Was that not ever going to be a route to go?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm laughing because I'm thinking, boy, I was really naive when I filed this case, but I don't think, Tim, I was that naive. <laughs> okay. Pretty, yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't think that if I picked up the phone and talked to the CEO of Remington that <laughs> he would all of a sudden fall on the sword and You're offer right, up Josh, whatever he could. I should
0: just pay them a lot of money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, what's your name again? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, sounds good to me. You know, but on a more serious note, the gun industry is very good at closing ranks. They're a very petty with each other. So they will sue each other over the drop of a hat in terms of a trademark infringement. Since they're all selling, you know, the same things, they all work the same, and they look the same under the hood and under the paint, they will sue each other at the drop of a hat. But when it comes to closing ranks and not yielding or giving an inch, the gun industry is right there. That's the NRA's playbook. You know, that's the National Sports Shooting Foundation's playbook, or the NSSF, which is the gun industry's marketing arm, you know, they really have, they move in lockstep when it comes to lawsuits. And it's a give no quarter policy.
0: And were you dealing with in-house counsel, outside counsel, both?
1: Outside counsel. There aren't a lot of people who work in-house at gun companies. As one of the things we found out, what was really sobering actually, is that I think Remington, which was, by the time we brought the lawsuit, the largest gun conglomerate, effectively it had ever been built. It wasn't a brand, Remington, it was a conglomerate, and they had one lawyer effectively running the show, which shows you that all that crying about how many gun laws there are by the gun industry, yeah, maybe there's a lot numerically, but they don't put a lot of pressure on the industry, such that you know a, a billion-dollar revenue a year conglomerate, like Remington was, can have a staff of all of one full-time lawyer. So did you feel outmatched?
0: You know, as you mentioned earlier, you'd never litigated a gun case before. Did you feel nervous or overwhelmed by any of this?
1: No, I first of all, by the time we filed the lawsuit, I was convinced we had a winner. And that's probably a subject for another podcast. But but I podcast about why does
0: Josh Koskoff have such conviction about certain things (laughs) in the face of
1: possible doom? In gloom? Yeah. Well, I'm not yeah. sure I would be comfortable signing my name to that one. But anyway, by the time we filed the lawsuit, I was convinced we had a, a strong case. And I knew that we would outlawyer them because we are in the soil of bringing hard cases in all types of circumstances. And I am basically cut my teeth as a medical malpractice lawyer. And, you know, medicine and, is very fuzzy and you have to make inferences and it's 100% gray area. So I was used to making these connections, these causal relationships between a wrongdoing and a result. So I felt comfortable with the narrative that we were going to tell. I thought it was powerful. And it was interesting because it came about very naturally since I didn't know anything about guns or gun laws. I was just receiving information and I was collaborating with my team here. You know, We would talk about it and we'd say, gee, this really doesn't make any sense. And why is it that these weapons are marketed to civilians when they were made for the military. And and in the military, you can't get your hands on one of these things until you've trained for 100 hours. It was just a series of connections. So I thought we had the, certainly had the just case. We certainly had the right side of the case and we had a story that really resonated. And the other thing is that because they never get to trial, I wasn't worried at all about getting to trial against lawyers who have no experience. I know what it's like to have no experience trying cases. It's terrible. You go in there and you get humiliated. I got humiliated for the first 10 years I practiced law and I still get, you know, routinely humiliated. It's hard.
0: Well, and this was a long case. How did you fund this case? It lasted eight years, 2014 to 2022. That's a long time to wait for justice and a paycheck, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, nobody, we were under no illusions. This was going to cost the firm a fair amount of money, but it was a case we could not in good conscience turn down, especially after we had developed these theories. So we thought we would you know, be an investment of a certain amount of money, but it mostly would be an investment of time. And so really, while we spent a small fortune, I'm sure, what we really spent was thousands and thousands of hours of time. And I always thought that was time well spent, and I wouldn't have regretted any of this had we gone down. My wife, close to the eve of when we filed the case, Apparently, I was getting cold feet, despite what I'm telling you, (laughs) Um, because I think my wife said, well, you were looking for a way for me to talk you out of it. And I'm like, here she goes with revisionist history. But she said that she asked me a question. She said, if I'm on my deathbed, would I rather look back and say, I'm glad we didn't take that case or I'm glad we took that case, even though we lost. And I woke up the next morning and I said, I knew exactly what we had to do.
0: See, the wives always know. They always they,
1: No, not always, but cuz she might be listening to this podcast, but most of the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and how would you describe the state of mind of the families? There were 26 victims, families representing nine of those victims, ended up with you in your suit were some too traumatized to yeah. want to take this on?
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to go back 10 years and we're staring into like a dark space, like a tunnel that's never been explored. And unlike other cases that have been tried and true cases, car accidents, airplane crashes, things that sort of shatter people's lives out of nowhere, this is uncharted territory. So it's really hard to make a fully strong recommendation to families that you're talking to at this stage. I was very clear that the odds were still stacked against us as strongly as I felt about the case. And I didn't know what the repercussions would be for the families. You know, whenever you take on the gun industry, even if it's for something that I think gun owners would also find revolting, like corporate greed, you do tend to attract people who are hostile. So there was a part of it that because the prospective payoff of being successful was daunting and the unknown was daunting in a bad way, it was hard to make a strong recommendation. A lot of people decided they didn't want to do it because of that. And I didn't want anybody that was sheepish about it to feel pressure to be part of the case. And then there were people who just didn't believe in suing a gun industry. You know, just because you're a parent of a child that was shot in a mass shooting doesn't make you politically aligned with all the other parents. So there was a lot of factors.
0: All right. We're going to pick up with that again in a minute. I'm going to take another brief break, Josh, to hear from the sponsor, and then we'll be right back. We're back with Josh Koskoff, the attorney who represented Sandy Hook families who sued Remington. Josh, take me through the pivotal moments in the court case, say the three or four moments in the case that for you are definitive or set the course for the outcome, including, I think, your decision to essentially go after them for their marketing practices.
1: Well, sure. One of the core pivots occurred early on, actually, before we filed, when I got an answer to the biggest hurdle that I thought we had, which is drawing a connection between the wrongdoing of this conglomerate, this gun conglomerate, and the shooting itself. The marketing itself was so awful that if I hold it up and showed it to you or basically anybody, you would say, that's just irresponsible, reckless, sick.
0: And a lot of that, sorry to interrupt, Josh, but a lot of that marketing sort of hinged on appealing to the machismo and insecurities of young male gun buyers, right? Like, you will be a real man if you have this high-powered weapon in your hands, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I describe the marketing as really a courtship, and the suitor was the gun conglomerate. And they were trying to court these young kids because the market had become flooded with competition, and so what was known at the time as Freedom Group Conglomerate had to do was they had to expand the market because they made a big bet on AR-15s. So they had to start pushing AR-15s on an increasingly younger demographic of user. And in doing so, younger demographic in today's America, millennials at the time, were not interested in hunting. So they weren't going to go out and buy a hunting rifle. But what they liked were you know, military video games And so they used video games and imagery of tactical gear, the gear surrounding it, to really promote a lone gunman sort of violent manliness, if you will, in the possession and use of an AR-15. And the iconic ad that people saw shortly after the shooting at least, it said your man card has been reissued with a picture of an AR-15. Very simple, very bold, very salacious marketing. So I, I was pretty clear that, you know, in front of a Connecticut jury, they weren't going to find that to be reasonable marketing. And another thing that was important was that Freedom Group was trying to go public back in 2010, and they issued a report to the SEC where they extolled the virtues of the younger demographic of user that can accessorize effectively the AR-15. So they saw this market as very promising for their bottom line as they were trying to go public. So I thought that was also like a sick component to this whole thing, that it was purely profit-driven. This wasn't driven by some ideal Second Amendment thing or these guys could have cared less about the Second Amendment.
0: And in the state of Connecticut, there was an opening legally to take a gunmaker to court if they either had a defective product or they were making false claims for their product, right? Or am I oversimplifying?
1: I mean, you're doing way better than I would have done interviewing me. It's very similar. The conceit was, of our case, you could sue for unethical, immoral, or unscrupulous marketing. And so what they were doing, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as false advertising, but it was outrageous conduct in advertising and marketing, and in every state is concerned about corporate wrongdoing to an extent in their way they do business. Connecticut had a bigger opening than many. And so that gave us the route through this immunity.
0: Because PLACA is a federal law.
1: PLACA is federal law, right. So
0: finding a state, an opening through state law gave you a leg up.
1: Yeah. And PLACA on its own terms, and this is the one thing about the PLACA immunity, you should know that the exception that has the most purchase or teeth is called the predicate exception. And This is an exception that says that you can still sue a gun manufacturer or seller that engages in conduct that violates a state or federal statute applicable to the sale or marketing of firearms. So you can still sue where they violate a state or federal statute applicable to the sale or marketing of firearms. What does that mean? The way I put it is that Congress was willing to do the biting of the gun industry in 2005. But they weren't willing to go the full distance. They weren't willing to immunize the gun industry from engaging in unlawful conduct. So they carved out this exception for unlawful conduct in the sale or marketing that's applicable to the sale or marketing of a firearm. So bottom line, where a gun company breaks a state or federal law applicable to the sale or marketing of a firearm, you can bring a lawsuit against them. And that's what we said that Connecticut's unfair trade practice marketing statute was.
0: Did you think you were gonna reach a settlement?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't think this industry would ever settle, and I don't think they would have settled. But it had taken so many years, and during this time, they went bankrupt not once but twice during our case. So what that did was then it left an insurance tower that was responsible. So just because an insured goes bankrupt, doesn't mean that the litigation ends because their solvent insurance companies still carry the burden of their obligations. They're not bankrupt. So we had four insurance companies now defending the case effectively. They were represented by very smart lawyers. And initially, they thought, I think they could beat us. But the more discovery and depositions that we did, I think they realized that we had a a strong case and agreed with us effectively that we had a strong case that was going to expose them to not just $73 but probably over a billion dollars worth of harm. But the families were steadfast. They were not going to take money and go away. The only thing that they would agree to settle for would be all the available money, but more importantly, the ability to use and disclose the documents that we obtained during discovery to the American people. That was the sine qua non of the settlement. And when the other side expressed a willingness to do that, even though I had sort of thought all along that the best place to have this argument and to expose this industry would be in a trial, people were just saying, Josh, you got to fold it up you can't get a better deal than this. So that's what we did. Did
0: the fact that, you know, Remington went bankrupt twice during the course of your litigation, and ultimately it was the insurers that paid, not Remington, did that take any teeth or satisfaction out of the settlement for you?
1: No, I think a settlement often takes some satisfaction away because it's a settlement. This one was unique, though, because We started at a place where all the so-called experts said we didn't have a chance. And I might have said that if I were looking from the outside in. We had accomplished so much and won so many important victories. Also, you never get a settlement, Tim, where you are able to continue to talk about the case or disclose documents on something so important. And I thought, I can't do better in court because if we try the case and we win it, it's going to get appealed. It's going to be another decade. And so I thought the settlement was the right time. The fact that it was for insurance companies, to me, at first, I would have liked the gun conglomerate to fall on its knees and beg for forgiveness and explain that they were going to change their ways. But like we talked about before, you know, this is an industry that just puts its head in the sand. They see no relationship whatsoever to what they're doing and what all of us are experiencing and seeing every day in America and take no responsibility for it. So it was too naive a thought. But the fact that these four insurance companies that were in the business of previously underwriting the gun industry all looked at this and said, yeah, we are in trouble financially on this. I took great satisfaction from that because the gun industry is not gonna change, but those that underwrite the industry, the arteries that support it, it has to become economically risky for corporate America to subsidize this industry, even with one dollar. And I thought that on that score, we achieved as much as we could possibly do.
0: Did it provide closure for the families too?
1: I thought it provided a moment of sunshine for the families is the way I described it. I can't speak for the families because I didn't lose a child in the first grade shooting. You know, that's just an unimaginable loss. And I don't know, I'm not sure I believe of the possibility of closure from that in that way. But I will say that these families had met with such recurring disappointment, frustration, and this feeling of, doesn't anybody recognize our side? Doesn't anybody recognize what we lost? Don't people understand this could happen to them? I think for at least those moments after we reached the settlement, there was a moment of reassurance and sunshine. And I think it's lasted, and I hope it lasts them and provides some sunshine as they go on with their lives for the rest of their lives.
0: So now you're representing more than a dozen victims of the Ovalde shooting and their parents. What traits does that litigation share or not share with the Sandy Hook case?
1: Well, on the facts, it's not that complicated. I mean, factually, you have a young shooter grew up in the age of first-person shooter games and this push by gun manufacturers to arm a younger and younger male consumer or what they call an end user. And you have a kid who was himself, many would have said, was a victim of adolescence and marginalization, a poor kid, a kid who had been abused as a child with a stutter and a perfect target for the message that was being sent. In that case, by Daniel Defense. And I do think Daniel Defense's marketing takes Bushmaster and multiplies it.
0: Bushmaster was the assault weapon used in the Sandy Hook shooting. In the Sandy
1: Hook shooting, yeah. And, you know, so if anybody was going to get the message being sent by Daniel Defense, it was going to be the shooter. And, you know, they had accomplices. They had Instagram. Daniel Defense did what Bushmaster did in in ye olden days of 2009, which is they manipulated social media and used social media to sort of promote their weaponry in a way that would have reached this very marginalized kid who then perpetrated this unthinkable act, much like the Sandy Hook shooter did. It's strikingly similar, and to some extent, we've seen this story before. When you saw Uvalde and your listeners saw and heard about Uvalde, I'm sure you thought about Sandy Hook, and I'm sure you thought about Parkland, and I'm sure you thought about every shooting virtually that we see these days. You probably guessed it was a young kid that was carrying out the shooting at the school, and that's always the case. So factually, it is very, very similar. It's even more extreme, I would say, because the kid was 18 in two or three days when he acquired the weapon, which means that he had been being courted and promoted that weapon for years, right? Because it's a $2,500 piece of metal. He had to work his way up to save up for it. So there's no doubt that they were marketing to this kid when he was a young teen and perhaps even before then. So it played out factually the same way. Now, our case was brought under Connecticut state law. Texas has much different laws, not surprisingly. And so they have a additional- Texas,
0: which has been the scene of serial school and public shootings over the last few years.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've seen several high profile mass shootings, but the law that applies to marketing is different. I mean, there are some laws that are the same, but you have to take your facts and you have to let the facts guide you in a direction. And then you have to- test it against existing law and try different pathways. It's really a process of exploration. So that's what we're in right now with Uvalde.
0: Do you think that other gun makers, the big ones like Sturm Ruger and Smith & Wesson, have been put on notice by the Sandy Hook settlement, or are they shrugging it off?
1: Well, they appear to be shrugging it off, to be honest. I mean, it's hard to know. The answer is it's hard to know. Certainly, outwardly, they're shrugging it off. In fact, the day of the announcement of the settlement, at Sandy Hook, the marketing arm of the industry, the NSSF, came out with a statement basically saying, We're about to put our head in the sand and here we go. You know, you were going to lose the case and this wasn't settled by us, it was settled by insurance companies. And basically, we're not going to change. And certainly, some of the marketing you continue to see doesn't seem to have learned the lesson. It's a classic choice between profit and responsibility. And to compete in this ever competitive market, For those last few consumers who might want an AR 15 and haven't been tapped for their money, they apparently believe they have to be more extreme. And it makes sense, right? The more extreme and outlandish the promotion, the more aggressive it is, the more shocking it is, the more likely they can distinguish themselves from their competitors. That's what we saw with Bushmaster when they revitalized this gun and brought in competition that all of a sudden became a threat to their. World dominance. They try to out-extrême them, and you know you still have this competition for. I think what's an increasingly smaller potential consumers that will want to purchase an Air 15 that haven't already.
0: You've touched on some of these things, and maybe you've actually already answered the question. But I always want to conclude by asking people what they've learned when they're part of a major collision like this, and what do you know now? About suing gun makers that you didn't know before suing Remington?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing that I know now is that the perception of the gun makers being above the law is just that. I mean, it's very, very hard to sue gun makers. However, it's also very, very hard to sue pharmaceutical companies, it's very hard to sue oil companies, it's very hard to sue neurosurgeons. Lots of lawsuits against powerful interests or people are challenging. So that's something I've learned. And hopefully, people get out of this. Another thing I've learned, of course, again, is the vulnerability of this industry. It's a small industry, it's a vulnerable industry. It won't take many of these lawsuits to get them to change their ways because they're going to have to. And I've also learned that this industry can't exist without insurance companies willing to insure them, without banks willing to loan them money, without delivery companies willing to ship their freaking products like AR 15s, right? Corporate America has a role to play. If corporate America and the people that work in corporate America are sick and tired of their kids having to go through school shootings, drills, and anxiety of getting shot, then guess what? They can play a role in helping solve this problem. So those things are things that I've learned.
0: Josh, the clock has run its course and we're out of time. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Tim.
0: Josh Koskoff is an attorney with Koskoff, Koskoff and Beter in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that if legislatures aren't going to do something about guns, maybe the court system will, especially if a lot of money's involved. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle at opinion or me at Tim O'Brien using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now, and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, the indispensable Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksson, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine Vandenbergilard. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like